Well, as always, it is a joy for me to be here with you all. Heather and I have just really loved Cornerstone and getting to know you and learning and walking alongside of you. I think it's been a little bit over a year now since we joined the group, and I can confidently say and joyfully say that this is our home, and it's just such a joy to be with you. And it's a joy to open up the Word of God, but it's a special joy when I get to do it in a place that I consider to be home with family. Amen. That's right. Before I do so, I want to give a special shout out to our pastor, Harry Walls. By the way, he's feeling a little under the weather this morning, so if you could please pray for him. Uh, but uh, last week, he mentioned that he's preached for 35 straight Resurrection Sundays. And I'm the poor sap who gets to break his streak. No pressure on my sermon or anything, right? Uh, well, he's preached 35 straight, but this is my very first Resurrection Sunday sermon. So I guess as long as I can do at least 135th as well, maybe I'll be doing all right, okay? But in all seriousness, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to be remaining in that uh, chapter. You can keep your Bibles there. I'll also have a PowerPoint up here that'll have some other key verses that uh, I'll be citing that you can look at. But 1 Corinthians 15 is where we're going to be rooted for this message. And this chapter is really known as one of the go-to resurrection passages in the Bible. And it's a natural place for a Resurrection Sunday message. And when we talk about the resurrection, we're really talking about an absolutely fundamental Christian doctrine. I love this quote from our very own Pastor John MacArthur. Just as the heart pumps life-giving blood to every part of the body, so the truth of the resurrection gives life to every other area of gospel truth. The resurrection is the pivot on which all of Christianity turns, and without which none of the other truths would much matter. Without the resurrection, Christianity would be so much wishful thinking, taking its place alongside all other human philosophy and religious speculation. So we'll actually be covering the first 19 verses of the chapter this morning. And as people who love expository preaching like you all do, you know that's a lot of ground. Usually we'll see maybe two, three, four, maybe five verses covered at a time. So I'm obviously not going to be going as deep or as detailed as uh, perhaps uh, Pastor John did way back in 1977 when he first preached through 1 Corinthians. But as I was studying for today, I was just so taken with this passage and the majestic sweep of its themes. You know, it's kind of funny. My original plan was to give a 20 or 30 minute devotional, but I was just so riveted by the word and and this portion of the chapter. And and just, I kept on going and going and going. So uh, let's, let's, uh, as we read this passage together, I I hope you'll kind of get that same sense of it that I did. I'll be reading from the new American standard. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received in which also you stand by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, 
but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Mm, Wow. Talk about a powerful passage as we celebrate Christ's resurrection. Amen. So let's break it down. As I considered this passage, some clear themes emerged to me. Verses 1 through 4 talk about the facts of the gospel. Verses 5 through 8 talk about the facts of the resurrection. Verses 9 through 11 talk about the implications of the gospel. And finally, verses 12 through 19 talk about the implications of the resurrection. Let's consider our first point, the facts of the gospel. That's what verses 1 to 4 are all about. Paul is making the gospel known to the believers in Corinth, which they received and by which they stand and are saved. But that begs the question, what is the gospel? I mean, we use that term all the time in Christian circles, right? Sometimes we explain it, but sometimes we don't. And I never want to just lapse into speaking Christianese or anything like that for so long that a newcomer or a relatively new believer isn't able to follow along easily. And you also might be surprised at how many people who've been in the church for years, many years even, still struggle and stumble and trip over their words a bit when they try to explain the gospel. I mean, that's how you know you really understand something, right? When you, when you, when you can explain and teach it. Especially if you're a parent, as I know so many of you are, you need to know how to communicate the gospel clearly in a way that's easy to understand. And to be clear, it isn't just me saying this. Hear what Paul says in verse 3, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. And then he goes on to basically summarize the gospel. Knowing the gospel, the facts of the gospel, the components of the gospel is a matter of first importance for a Christian. No other doctrine is more important than this one. So we need to know and understand it ourselves, and we need to understand and be able to teach it to others. The saving power of the gospel is how Christians are reconciled to God. It's how Christians go to heaven and enjoy an eternity with our Savior in fellowship with him rather than an eternity of suffering and separation in hell. The gospel is how we evangelize, how we spread the good news to others. And in so doing, God's kingdom expands to reach the precise number of people that he has chosen from before the foundation of the world, as it says in Ephesians 1.4. The power of the gospel is what turned the ancient world upside down. It's how a bunch of formerly bumbling disciples saw their Savior die for them. And then they received the Holy Spirit and went forth to the uttermost ends of the earth, enduring persecution and hardship and even torture and death 
all to proclaim the glory of God and his glorious gospel. So with all of these amazing things in mind, what are the facts of the gospel from this passage? What are these matters of first importance that Paul received and delivered to the Corinthians? Well, we'll go over it piece by piece. I do want to say here that in terms of this passage, this portion, these are not the only facts of the gospel. These are not even the only facts that a person might be able to mine from this rich, rich passage. I'm not saying that you must convey every single one of these facts in every single one of your gospel presentations. I'm not saying you have to throw away your Romans road or throw away your Ten Commandments or whatever other kind of method of evangelism that you use. And by the way, any kind of method that helps get you out of yourself and bring the gospel, as long as it's a faithful message, a faithful method, I praise the Lord for that because we all need that encouragement, right? We all need that practice, that training to be able to give the gospel to people. So I'm not suggesting this is the only way to do it. But I do hope and pray that by going over the facts of the gospel that I'm going to lay out for you from this passage, that it will deepen your love and appreciation for the gospel and for Holy Scripture. So first, let's look at verse 3. We have Christ. Stop right there. There's an infinite amount packed within that one word, Christ. Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, the Son of God eternally and always existing, creator of the universe and of all things, and never having been created himself, holy and set apart, perfect in every way. And then he came down to earth from heaven in the form of a bondservant, born of a virgin as an infant babe, taking on a fully human nature while still possessing all the fullness of deity, and he grew in wisdom and stature, the scriptures say. He, he, he began his earthly ministry. He, he worked so many miracles that he healed every kind of disease and every kind of sickness in the people of Israel. He lived a perfect and sinless life. And there's so much more than that. You know that. I could preach an entire sermon, an entire class, an entire lifetime We could fill up more books than the world could contain. And still we could never exist the glory and the riches of Christ. Still we could never learn all there is to know about Christ. Still we could never have a full understanding of Christ. And yet, he is so kind and so loving that he allows even little children to come to him. He allows even little children to understand enough of him to be saved. What an incredible thing that we have such riches and such breadth and such depth. And yet, even just knowing a little of Christ can save even a little child. You know, if I had to pick one single thing just from the initial part of this verse to highlight one basic and fundamental fact about our precious Christ to convey to a little child or an unbeliever to help understand who Christ is, it would be that Jesus is God. That that would probably be one of the most fundamental facts about Christ that I could convey to someone new. I have a story to tell, and I think think some of you in particular particular will appreciate this. Uh, The best man at my wedding was a man named Kurt. 
and uh, he was a pastor here, and uh, he's, he's a six-foot-seven giant of a man, and uh, he is a passionate man for evangelism. And I remember he was telling a story that uh, a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses happened to come to his door. It was a, I'm sure that was a day that those Jehovah's Witnesses will not soon forget, because they did not get very far at all before Kurt interrupted them and said, I, I just need to tell you one thing. Jesus is Jehovah. And, and, and there's like this old Memorex commercial, I think it was, where you've got a guy sitting in a, in a chair and it's a sound system and it's like his hair is flying back. And, and I kind of get in my mind's eye, even though I wasn't there, I kind of feel like that's how it might have been for them. Because, you know, he, he's a loving man, but he loves the truth. He loves the gospel. He loves his savior. And uh, just e- even that story can give you a notion about the key portion of, the, you know, one thing about the Jehovah's Witnesses is they believe Jesus is a created being, which is a heresy, and it's completely false, and it's damning, I would even say. And so that's such a key point to convey is that Jesus is God. Jesus is Jehovah. But in particular, the reason I choose that particular fact to highlight out of this passage is because of a second fact of the gospel from our passage, which is that he died for our sins. He died for our sins. Paul is referring here to the theological concept called the atonement. Christ died to take our sins upon himself. And in doing so, he made us white as snow. Our sins forgiven, our price paid. This is why the fact that Christ is God is so important. Because only God can pay the price for sins permanently once and for all. If Christ wasn't God then he wouldn't have been able to pay the eternal price for our sins. Because no mere man, no mortal creature, whether a sacrificial lamb or even a human being, can bear that burden not forever. Remember, the Jews had to make blood sacrifices of animals, mortal animals, all the time. Because the sacrifice was never enough. Its power was as fleeting as any mortal life. But Christ is God infinitely powerful, infinitely holy, infinitely capable of bearing all of our sins forever. And so he can pay that price once and for all. Let's consider a third fact out of this passage of the gospel. Christ died for our sins. Remember that Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. He's addressing fellow believers So this little word, our, drives home the fact that the atonement of Christ is a limited atonement. It's, Or another word would be a definite atonement. Christ died for the sins of believers and only believers. He died for those whom he foreknew, those whom he predestined to become conformed to the image of Christ, as it says in Romans 8, 29. He died for the remnant, the ones on the narrow path, The ones who would confess with their mouths Jesus as Lord and believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead, as it says in Romans 10, 9. Now, of course, we, in our limited human knowledge and understanding, we don't know who those predestined ones are going to be. Only God knows. And that's why we proclaim the gospel to all. That's why we plead and beg and call everyone to repentance, because in addition to that being a command... You never know who God might call to himself. Certainly, I never would have thought that God would save me before I was a believer. 
Let's consider a fourth fact of the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now, at the time of this letter of 1 Corinthians, the vast majority of the New Testament had not been written yet. So this beautiful phrase, according to the scriptures, refers to and ties in the entire Old Testament, which Paul the Pharisee, the former Pharisee, the, for the, the Hebrew among Hebrews, he called himself, he knew that Old Testament incredibly well. According to the scriptures, highlights the fact that Christ, as the Messiah, is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. I mean, by some counts, we're talking about hundreds of prophecies perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. I'd say that in terms of Christ dying for our sins, the clearest prophecy from the Old Testament scriptures that he fulfilled on that point is in the last half of Isaiah 53, verse 12. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. You you can't get much more clear than that, right? Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, just as the prophet Isaiah predicted centuries earlier that the Messiah would pour him out himself to death, bearing the sin of many. And again, I want to point out, notice, it's not the sin of all, but the sin of many. So that's another point in favor of and arguing for and showing a limited and definite atonement. He interceded for the transgressors, and that's our fourth fact of the, of the gospel. Fifth, he was buried. The point I'm going to highlight here is a simple one. Christ actually died and was actually buried. And just as important as the fact that Christ is fully God and so was able to permanently pay for all of the sins of everyone who would ever believe in him is the fact that Christ is fully man. Because he had to actually die in order to pay this price of sin. And think about it. Obviously, God cannot die. But man can die. And so Christ also needed to be fully man. Hebrews 9.22 says this clearly. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So Christ needed to shed his blood and die in order to atone for the sins of believers. And the fact that Christ was buried was another fulfillment of prophecy, by the way, this time from Isaiah 53, verse 9. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Such a perfect description of Christ. Sixth, Christ was raised on the third day. One thing that earnest Christians often miss is that the resurrection is a critical part of the gospel. Now, we're going to get into the resurrection in detail in a bit. But remember, right now we still have Paul describing what he says is of first importance, specifically these facts of the gospel. And these facts include the resurrection. He he reiterates that point in Romans 10 verse 9, which I mentioned earlier. That we need to believe in our hearts that God 
raised Christ from the dead. So we should never minimize this point, and we should strive not to forget this point or neglect this point when we evangelize. Seventh and finally, in this portion of the passage, we see, again, according to the scriptures. Christ's resurrection was foretold in the Old Testament. Perhaps it isn't as hit you over the head obvious as the prophecies about Jesus dying for our sins, but it will still be clear, and I'll show you why. Let's look at Psalm 16, verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Okay, so maybe we can use this one to predict that Christ won't be left in the tomb, that he will indeed return. But where do we get the three days part? Well, for that we have Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Now, if you're paying attention, I think you would rightly be able to say to me, Han, that just describes what happened to Jonah. There's no prophecy there about Christ. That's a great observation, and normally I'd be inclined to agree with you. But here's the trump card that we have. We have the words of our Savior himself in Matthew 12, verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So there's this clear linkage again with the Old Testament scriptures. Now, it's one of those mysteries that might have been concealed from the eyes of most Jews before the time of Christ, but it's also one where we can look back and marvel at the perfect harmony and unity of the Bible, of the scriptures, of the Old and the New Testaments. For me personally, it was one of those, wow, the Bible is so cool moments, right? As we conclude our first and longest point of this sermon on the facts of the gospel from this passage, I want to take just a moment to highlight something. These facts of the gospel here are relatively brief and basic, and they're absolutely fundamental. But please notice what's missing from the facts of the gospel here and anywhere else in the Bible, by the way. There's no mention of baptism. There's no mention of circumcision. There's no mention of works of any kind, for that matter, whenever you're talking about the gospel in Scripture. There's no mention of justice, much less social justice. There's no mention of priests or needing any kind of other human being or the Virgin Mary to intercede for you. There's no mention of praying a prayer one time and asking Jesus into your heart. There's no mention of being a good person and just hoping your positive actions outweigh your negative ones. There's none of that at all. The gospel is so incredibly rich and you can mine it for treasure for your entire life. But again, it's also simple enough for young children. And so one thing you must not do is add to the gospel. Every aspect of the gospel needs to be drawn explicitly from scripture alone. Once you start adding things to the gospel or inserting your own biases, that's when you get the Galatian heresy where they added works to the gospel. So many cults do this. Even so many movements within the church go off the rails when they do this. Okay, I think that's enough. So we can go on to our second point. I got to restrain myself a little bit, I think, which is the facts of the resurrection. 
As Paul continues in verses 5 through 8, he provides a laundry list of people to whom our risen Savior appeared. The list roughly appears to be in chronological order, although it omits some very key people, specifically the women who were the first to see Christ after his resurrection. Now, I'm confident the reason for this omission is because in the patriarchal society of ancient Israel, women were not even considered to be valid witnesses. And Paul's purpose in listing these people is specifically to demonstrate and prove by strong and admissible evidence that the resurrection of Christ was a historical fact. He's saying, yes, I know I just told you Christ was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. But you don't have to take my word for it. Here are all these other people who can tell you the same thing because they saw it with their own eyes. And in the case of the 12, they didn't just see him. They touched and they felt him. They embraced him. Downing Thomas even went so far as to stick his fingers in the Lord's nail pierced hands and spear pierced side. I mean, that must have been an interesting interaction and experience, right? I just find it so in my mind. Downing Thomas is just kind of. I kind of laugh at trying to even envision that scene. It's like, do you mind if I just, I just, it's just so funny to me. I just. (laughs) So Paul then goes on to talk about Jesus appearing to 500 brethren at one time. And then he does something interesting. He highlights the fact that many of these 500 brothers remained alive at the time Paul wrote his letter to the Corinthians. Sure, some had fallen asleep or, in other words, died, which is to be expected during this 20 to 25-year gap between Jesus' return and the writing of 1 Corinthians. But the reason Paul highlighted the fact that many remained alive even at the time of his writing is, again, for the benefit of testimonial evidence. There were hundreds and hundreds of people who saw Jesus appear in Galilee after his resurrection, as Mark 16, verse 7 describes. Remember, Paul is writing these letters in a semi-public fashion. The the, the epistles would be read in the churches that they were addressed to, and then they would be passed around and circulated. This is how we copied and retained what ultimately became the New Testament. So anyone who doubted Jesus rose again could just go and talk to one of the eyewitnesses who had seen him. Now, as a lawyer myself, I can tell you, You don't just circulate an invented story and try to pass it off as real when there are so many eyewitnesses to the actual event. It's too risky. It's too easy to be contradicted. The Jews would be jumping all over the Christians if they were inconsistencies in the resurrection story. Instead, we see the opposite here. Paul says, go talk to the eyewitnesses. They're still alive. They're still around. And they can confirm what happened. And they're even willing to confirm it, despite the fact that doing so would mean persecution and potentially even death. Look, no one was following Jesus for kicks back then, right? The cost was just too high. And Christianity often flourishes against a backdrop of persecution, because all of the casual followers, all of the people drawn to Christianity for all of the wrong reasons, they all bail. And what's left are the true believers who are willing to suffer and endure. So let's finish off this second point. After the 500, he appeared to James and then all the apostles and finally to Paul himself on the Damascus road. Of these three, only the last is an event recorded in scripture. 
Now, we don't need anything more than Paul's testimony inspired by the Holy Spirit in this very verse to know that it's true. But we just don't have any more details about the appearances to the apostles generally and to James. And by the way, this is James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote the book of James that Harry is superbly preaching through on most of our Sundays. And we know it's that James because at the time of Paul's letter, the only other well-known James had been martyred. We see that in Acts 12, verse 2. That's the only other well-known James that the Christian church uh, would know about at that time from what we understand. And finally, I would add that the fact that Jesus appeared to Paul is another important thing to consider because now Paul is an eyewitness himself. He's attesting in these letters to Jesus's resurrection and return based on his own personal knowledge. It's not hearsay evidence from anyone else. So that finishes verses five through eight and our second point, the facts of the resurrection. Our third point is the implications of the gospel from verses 9 through 11. In this section, Paul talks about the radical change that the gospel worked in his life. He starts by fully acknowledging responsibility for his past. He calls himself the least of the apostles, not even fit to be called an apostle, because he persecuted the church. There's no blame shifting or minimizing here. He owns it fully. Before Christ, Paul was a man full of self-righteous hatred, without mercy, participating in even the murder of Christians. But God, but by the grace of God, he reached down and saved Paul on the Damascus road. There's nothing Paul could do to earn this salvation by works. Quite the contrary, his works were overtly hostile to God and his people. And yet in his infinite kindness, God nevertheless saved Paul. And what what happened next? Saul the persecutor became Paul the apostle. And all that zeal that he had to stamp out Christianity was turned around 180 degrees and became a zeal for God's house that consumed Paul like a fire. He became the most effective and prolific propagator of the gospel message. And God used him to bring the truth even to the Gentiles. And Christianity spread like wildfire. This was his life's work. He labored harder than all of the other apostles. And I really think that Paul is just saying this matter-of-factly and not boastfully here. I mean, if you're the first one to arrive at work and the last one to leave every single day, you kind of know you're working the hardest at your company, right? And Paul adds that none of this is through his own strength, but only thanks to the grace of God. So even if he does boast, he boasts in the Lord. And Paul didn't even care about getting the credit, by the way. It it didn't matter to Paul if it was him or any of the other apostles who proclaimed the gospel message that would save a person. All Paul wanted was for people to believe, for people to be saved. We even know from Romans chapter 9 verse 3 that he wanted that so much that if it were possible, he would have been willing to trade his own salvation and spend an eternity in hell for the sake of his kinsmen who he loved so much. Now that 
is an attitude of sacrificial humility. Amen? In my own fleshly selfishness and pride, I can't even, I just can't even imagine being willing to make that trade. But Paul, he, he had such a heart for his kinsmen that he was even willing to trade his own salvation. Were that possible? So we see these implications of the gospel. We see an ownership of past sin, a change from hating God and his people to loving God and his people, a desire to get to work and work hard for the kingdom, and a sacrificial humility that considers others as more important than yourself, as it says in Philippians 2, verse 3. Altogether, just taking this all in, the life of a Christian ought to look radically different from the life of an unbeliever. Because no one can genuinely receive the gospel and have a response over time that is ambivalent. The reaction to Christ dying for your sins is not meh or yeah, whatever or anything like that. That's not the reaction. And in fact, the warning in Revelation 3 verse 16 is that God will spit the lukewarm out of his holy mouth. Phil Johnson in his sermon from the main pulpit on March 24 goes over how in Luke 14 verses 25 through 27, Jesus called a crowd of unbelievers to repent so dramatically that compared to Jesus, they would hate even their own immediate family. Quoting from Phil's sermon, Jesus was looking for quality, not numbers. Much of what Jesus said, including virtually everything he ever said about discipleship, was designed to drive away half-hearted followers. Now, I do want to make something clear. When I talk about the radical nature of a Christian's life, I'm not saying that everyone needs to have the same type of radical conversion testimony that Paul had, or even that someone like me had when God saved me out of a hedonistic, secular lifestyle as an entertainment lawyer at the age of 34. I hear it quite often. Oh, you've got, you've got such a great testimony. I, I don't have a testimony like that. And my response is, praise the Lord that you don't have a testimony like that, that you didn't have 34 wasted years of life like I did. What, what a joy to know that you've been faithful to the Lord for the great majority of your life. Because that's my own desire for my own children and my children's children. So praise the Lord for that faithful testimony. It's totally okay if you don't have a specific moment or event that you can remember for when God saved you. It's totally fine if your understanding of the gospel and your growth in sanctification has happened gradually over the course of your life. My prayer for you is that you would have peace and assurance and maturity and that 1 John 3 verse 10 would resonate with you. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. There's an obvious difference between Christians and non-Christians. I pray your life would look obviously different from the unbelievers around us. And I trust that is indeed the case for the great majority of you. Because that too would be the evidence, the fruit of the implications of the gospel within you. And that's our third point, the implications of the gospel.
Our fourth and final point today is the implications of the resurrection. And at this point, I'm going to ask, uh, there's, a, there's a couple of guys I think that have uh, some, uh, a one-page handout for you. So I'm going to ask that they hand that out at this time. As we look at verses 12 through 19, it's probably more accurate to say the implications of no resurrection. Because first, Paul presents the plain truth that resurrection is clearly and obviously a part of apostolic and scriptural preaching. But despite that plain truth, some in Corinth were nevertheless going around daring to claim that there is no resurrection of the dead. And then Paul just launches on on, on that concept. And, And as a lawyer, I have so much appreciation for Paul and the logical arguments that he puts forward. And he just, he steps them through it. So he tells the congregation, okay, so these people claim there's no resurrection. Let's walk through what that would mean what the consequences of that would be. Well, the consequences would be utter disaster. Because if there's no such thing as resurrection, then logically, not even Christ has been raised. Paul says that twice in this passage. That's how important it is. So everyone who dies stays dead. And if that's the case, then the preaching of the apostles has been in vain. Because those apostles have been preaching the resurrection. And one corollary of that is that the apostles have even been false witnesses of God. So not only has their preaching been in vain, it's even worse. These apostles have been sinning by telling lies about God if there really is no resurrection. So if the preaching has been in vain, then the very same faith that they've been preaching is also in vain. Or another word for it is useless. Again, this concept is repeated in this passage. That's how important it is. Because in that case, Christians are putting their faith in something that isn't true, thinking only that their sins have been paid for. But we know from elsewhere in the Bible that if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then we have no justification, which means the removal of guilt and penalty for sin while being made righteous through Christ's atoning sacrifice. And that's exactly what Romans 4.25 says. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. So if Jesus isn't raised, if there is no resurrection, we have no removal of the guilt and penalty for sin. And finally, last but not least, if there is no resurrection, then all of the faithful Christians who have died have truly perished. They're in the grave permanently. And that means our only hope is for this life, which is as the English philosopher Thomas Hobbes once wrote, this life is nasty, brutish, and short. If that's the case, then we clueless, naive Christians who have been lied to by the apostles are of all people the most to be pitied. That's what this passage says. These are the horrifying consequences if there is no resurrection. Who in the world would want to believe that? I ask you. I mean, it reminds me of the atheists who say that there is no God in this life is all we have. What an incredibly depressing thought. But that is not true. And deep down in these atheists' hearts, even they know it isn't true because Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 says that God has set eternity within the hearts of men. We know 
that eternity does indeed await us. It's an eternity in hell or an eternity with God in heaven if we put our faith and trust in Christ and confess him as Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. And all of that brings me to the positive implications of the resurrection. On this glorious Resurrection Sunday, I've handed out a list of 20 things that Christ's resurrection achieved, 20 implications of the resurrection, and this list is straight from the fantastic biblical doctrine book put out by Pastor John and the Master Seminary, and our own Nathan Buznitz just uh, did an incredible job contributing to this. So many hours, I I just really marvel. I don't know that this book even could have been written without Nathan, or at least certainly could not have been written on time without Nathan. And that list has a bunch of scripture references there, so you can consult that at your convenience. You don't have to just take my word for it. I always want you to go back to the scriptures and compare against everything that I say. But I'm just briefly, let's let's read these 20. The fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. We've talked a bit about that. The fulfillment of Jesus' own predictions. We've talked about that as well in terms of when Jesus talked about Jesus talked about Jonah. The confirmation of the Son's deity. The exaltation of the Father manifesting his perfections. The perfection of Jesus' obedience to his Father's will. Proof that the Father accepted the atoning work of Christ in his sacrificial death on the cross. Provision of regeneration for the elect. Assurance that believers will not perish due to their sins. Securing the justification of believers and assurance that they will never be condemned by God. Number 10, opening the way for Christ to send the Holy Spirit to indwell believers and form them into the church, the body of Christ. Declaration of Christ as the head of the church and ruler of creation. Establishment of God's pattern of power in spiritually raising believers from spiritual death in their trespasses. Motivation for spiritual living since believers are already seated with Christ in heaven and assured of being with him in glory. Rendering of mandatory, valid, and fruitful service for Christ. 15, encouragement to establish the first day of the week for worshiping Christ and serving him in local assemblies. 16, establishment of an unshakable foundation for hope, a confident expectation for God to fulfill all his promises. 17, the guarantee of a future resurrection life for all believers. 18, confirmation of the future fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. 19, the guarantee that Christ will judge the world. And number 20, the glorification and exaltation of the Son with the glory he once shared with the Father. These are all some incredible implications of the resurrection. And as we kind of ponder that on this Resurrection Sunday, I just pray, again, the scriptures are so rich. It is an infinite time of of power and wisdom and truth that can enrich you so well. And as I begin to wrap things up, I want to tell you why I gave you this high-level overview of 19 verses. One of the many beautiful things about Scripture is that it contains patterns and themes. And sometimes taking a 30,000-foot view can help you see them. 
And as we consider the four points of our passage, I want to highlight two things. First, it's crystal clear from this passage that the gospel and the resurrection are completely woven together. They are integral to one another. You can't really have one concept without the other. And that's why I think it's so important to make sure our evangelism includes the resurrection, this matter of first importance. That's why we can't think of the resurrection without also thinking about the glorious gospel. The second thing I want to highlight is that theological facts, like we discussed with the gospel and the resurrection, are completely woven together with their practical implications. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy, or in other words, correct doctrine leads to correct practice. Right thinking leads to right living. Knowing the gospel leads to a radically different life from those around us. And knowing the resurrection leads to bold courage and hard work for the Lord. And I'm going to prove this to you by reading the very end of 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 through 58. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. What a precious truth. What a precious promise. The resurrection means we don't have to fear death, y'all. Amen. That's right. Because death has no sting. Whatever this life throws at us, we can take comfort and peace and confidence from knowing That this life is the worst that anything will ever be for us. We have a far better future ahead of us with glorified and sinless bodies awaiting us in the resurrection, in the eternal presence of our beloved Savior. So be bold for Christ, even if it means scorn and disdain or even persecution that might be coming to us in the not too distant future. Even if it means utter hatred, murderous hatred. I'll tell you, my thoughts have been drawn this month to our Armenian brothers and sisters who this Wednesday commemorate 104 years since the start of the Armenian genocide when Ottoman Turkish Muslims slaughtered one and a half million Armenian Christians. And of course, whenever we think of genocide, our thoughts are also drawn to the Jewish people. Because today, in addition to today being Resurrection Sunday, it's also Passover, a reminder of God's deliverance of the Jews from Egypt. And we're not just talking about the God-fearing Jews in the Old Testament era, but also the remnant of Messianic Jews in the church age. So many of these Jews have suffered horrific genocide and ethnic cleansing over the course of the centuries and millennia. And we could relate so many other tales of the worst hardships imaginable that our brothers and sisters have endured from mass murder of the early Christians by Roman emperors to the cruel enslavement of even the children and grandchildren of African brothers and sisters who had converted to the faith, 
to the continuing persecution and execution of so many faithful Christians in certain Islamic countries today. Even this very morning, I woke up to a headline that said that hundreds of Christians had been murdered by suicide bombs in Sri Lanka, which is a tragedy. Just my heart goes out to them. I think of last month when I read stories about hundreds or might have even been over a thousand Christians murdered and chased out of their homes in Nigeria by Muslim radicals. I think about all of that. I think, I think about this hardship and yet I rejoice in the resurrection. I think about that and I think, wow, just even that hardship Christians can endure. I think that's maybe a tiny bit worse than microaggressions or getting the stink eye from your coworkers and neighbors, right? But whatever the hardship, whatever the persecution, as Christians, we can persevere. We can have courage and continue working for the kingdom. And Lord willing, we'll have the chance to meet these awesome saints and martyrs that I've talked about in the future in our glorified resurrection bodies. Amen. That's the power of the resurrection, beloved. Both the fact that Christ arose from the dead and the promise of our future resurrection, which will happen for all Christians who confess Jesus as Lord and believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead. And I pray that describes you this morning, this glorious resurrection Sunday. But if you're not sure, please, I I implore you, I beg you, I plead with you. Come talk to me. Come talk to one of the other pastors, your Mark or Nathan, any of our leaders. It would be our honor and our privilege to share with you the unparalleled joy of being in Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we reflect on the resurrection, on this glorious resurrection Sunday, we just thank you for Jesus, our Savior. The only way to heaven, the exclusive way to heaven. There is no other name. Lord, we're just so thankful to you for your provision of a solution for the otherwise impossible problem of our sin that would separate us permanently from a perfectly holy God. And yet through Jesus, we can know eternal fellowship with you. And it's in the name of your matchless son that we pray. Amen.